And welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's most dogged environmental news hour. Flapping our ears in the morning wind. And uh, we are on your local community radio station, podcast platforms, Harbinger Media Network. I am David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And Stefan will be interviewing today. Jessa McLean and Santiago Halo Quintero, who are the host and producer and co-host of the Blueprints of Disruption podcast. The Blueprints of Disruption podcast. And you are talking about the supreme joy of the activism well, that one does. Yeah, well, in the need... Supreme, supreme joy. The need for joy within activism. All right, and we are going to get into that interview in a few minutes here first we're going to mention a couple of news stories is that what we're doing right now or does anybody have anything That's they would prefer to right okay so check this out so remember was it last year was it a few years ago quebec is was trying to uh send clean hydropower to maine right they're trying to, they were trying to they were trying to put up big transmission lines from quebec to new england so the lines will go through Maine. And so the people in Maine, there was a ballot initiative. So in the States, obviously, you can re- there are certain things people can vote on, policies people can vote on when they vote for other politicians or, or maybe sometimes the, the ballot initiatives just occur. I don't know. But anyway, people can vote on specific policies. And so what happened was the people in Maine were like, no, we, we're, not, we're not allowing these hydro, these hydro lines through our... our uh, our state. And so a green energy initiative was blocked by local democracy, right, is the story. And now uh, what happened was a judge or a jury has ruled that that ballot initiative actually violated the rights of the corporation that was building the transmission lines. And now uh, the the jury has, uh, Maine Supreme Court has overturned the ballot initiative. And so now the transmission lines are going to be built. And so what's happened here is that corporate power, Stefan, has crushed local democracy in favor of green energy. I mean, I, th- I, think, I do think that this is an example of some of the challenges that the green, energy re- the green energy revolution will have. You know, like one of the big things we're going to have to do is build a ton more transmission lines everywhere. Because that's just one of the things that are necessary for uh, a more uh, distributed energy system. Now, they don't have necessarily be as, as huge as these ones because these ones are trying to deliver uh, hydropower, which is, you know, more of a hard path, less distributed, centralized energy system. Um, but, you know, if we can't make the case for local communities to accept these kind of things, then, then that's going to be a challenge. And secondly, Chile has announced plans to nationalize their entire lithium industry. And this is a country that has far and away the largest lithium reserves in the world. Their their potential uh, trade value is close to a billion dollars a year in U.S. Uh, money from lithium uh, in Chile. And currently, they have there are two large private corporations that are supplying companies like Tesla um, with lithium. But their contracts are going to expire in 2030 and then and then 2043. And so Chile is signaling that they are going to take control over their lithium reserves nationally uh, as lithium becomes more and more uh, important. 
in the global minerals resource market. Okay. And I mean, this is, this is kind of cool. I, I, obviously, simply nationalizing an extractive industry doesn't guarantee that that extractive industry is 100% going to act within the best interest of, of, of its peoples, especially its indigenous peoples. Um, but that being said, this to me, I, albeit I do need to do a little more reading, does seem like a cool and positive step forward um, as it does at least like literally just like this, like one AP news headline is like Chile's plan for state control in lithium dismays business. And basically anything that dismays business seems like a good idea to me, at least on the surface, because what that means is that theoretically any revenue that is generated by this industry, as long as government is functioning properly, should theoretically be going back into public coffers and and, and, and supporting um, public services and systems. So I mean, again, I need to do some more reading and then it's all contingent on, on how effectively or, or, or I don't know how much a government really is acting in sort of uh, on behalf of of its peoples, but th- this seems like a positive step forward, and this does seem like I don't know. We always love to have examples to point to for nationalization of various energy systems. It's obviously something we talked about a lot a couple of weeks ago when we were going over the industry chapters in um, the end of this world, and it's a model that a lot of people advocate for within progressive spaces within so-called Canada, obviously in. in but, but always in, in ways that um, respect and uphold Indigenous sovereignty as well. So hopefully that is what is happening here in Chile. Um, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself before I do more reading, but maybe it's something we can circle back on in the coming weeks if we want to do more of a deep dive into, I don't know, examples of of nationalization of energy systems. Or yeah. not energy systems, sorry, various industries. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I mean, I think also when you talk about the how we can try to make sure that the mining of these rare earth metals that are required for renewable energy does not mimic the truly terrible way that we currently mine for everything else, including these renewable energies, I think this has to be one of the conversations, right? Like, it is much, much, much easier for Chile as a country to ensure that it is taking care of its people. It's much more responsive to its people, you know, than a Canadian company that is based in Toronto that's on the TSX coming in with their, their, you know, with their private industry into these small communities that are often run. So like, I think from a standpoint of will this much, much, much more likely be responsive to the desires of people who live in Chile versus, uh, versus what we currently have or versus a private industry that is not even a, you know, a company that's, that that's even based there. I got to think like, it's got to be better. You know, whether or not it's perfect, different question. But there's just no way I would not trust the government of Chile to be better at this than, you know, the the mining conglomerates of the world. Yeah, 100% to be conducting its 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 behavior or its or its business, business quote unquote. Um in, in in a way that yeah, like you said, is more respectful of of the peoples who live in and around those extraction those extractive sites versus yeah, a Canadian company going in messing things up and then leaving once we've had our way with the land. All right, now we're going to go to some music and come back with Stefan's interview with Jessica McLean and Santiago Halo Quintero, who are the host and producer and co-host of the Blueprints of Disruption podcast. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. 
we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. I'm here with Jessa McLean, the host of Blueprints of Disruption, and also Santiago Halo Quintero, the producer and co-host of Blueprints of Disruption. Needless to say, super excited about this conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. It's the first time we've been interviewed together to talk about what we do. Yeah, it's exciting yeah. to be on the other side of it this time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's not too often I get to actually interview people who also do interviews. So this is exciting. And y'all can at the end rate me. We'll find out how I do. <laughs> we'll start growing um, you. Exactly. Yeah. So for folks who just want to get uh, introduction, what is the Blueprints of Disruption and and why did you start it? I'm going to take this one because, you know, the kernel did start with me. It was born through a real frustration of electoral politics and a wanting to give folks, you know, the tools, motivations, stories they needed to really step up their game in terms of fighting these systems of oppression. So being disruptive and giving blueprints of disruption. They hated the name at first, you know, the folks that I was working with, but I stuck with it because it really is what we want to provide folks. So most of the time we interview activists and, and organizers, but Santiago and I get into all kinds of topics, challenging narratives, and Santiago's helped shape what it's become now, you know, and it's really just a small portion of what we really want to get done, right? So it, yeah. ultimately, it's a podcast that we release weekly about an hour long. Yeah, no, I mean, there's going to be so much changes in the future. But yeah, no, that captures, I think, really nicely what it is. You know, there's a lot of time people who want to get involved in things, they don't really know where to turn to. And the answer to that is so often turning to getting involved in electoral politics and both of our experiences are that more often than not, that ends up burning people out and, and driving people out of organizing altogether. And so really what we're trying to do is just show people all the different ways that they, they can get involved and highlight all of the people who are doing that great work because there's just so much of it that never gets out there. People have no idea how much good organizing there is going on out there. Or how much bad stuff goes on in partisan <laughs> Bases because we've done quite a few episodes that were our most popular episodes. And it goes to explaining the power structures we have to work around. And one of those is the NDP. And, you know, our frustrations are born through our experiences specifically with that party and just encouraging folks because when you, when you vent your frustrations there with electoral politics, people often, you know, well, what then? Right? What then? And the answer is there is a million ways you can influence still politics without wasting energy in those spaces. Yeah. And that's, I think, so important, especially to highlight now when we're not in a place right now where it feels like almost any politics can be really effectively pushed for, you know, right? Like 
I would say outside of the ex- exception potentially of this weird mayoral by-election, which is a remarkable opportunity, which I've sort of said previously to potentially give us some, some hope in the city. But as you look up, it does not get better. You know, you at this point, I kind of expect halfway through the mayor by-election for Doug Ford to just say, I'm mayor now, and us to be like, cool, dissolving Toronto and dealing with that. Because like, that would not be against his previous MO, right? That would be <laughs> totally and within his power. But that all of that goes to speak to, I think, actually the such necessary way to give people other types of ways to engage. Like that is so important. And so the fact that you're doing that is really, really exciting. And so you've hinted at it there, but how do you see the state of activism? Because I think there's places where you can be certainly despondent in our sort of inability to build power. But also, as you said, there are so much going on that people don't see that if you actually lift back the curtain a little bit, there's actually a lot of hope potentially there too from all the people doing incredible work. And so given your sort of experiences doing this podcast and the work you do generally, how how is the state of activism in Canada? A lot of people, I think, are starting to understand the need to be more disruptive, to take tactics beyond the awareness-raising stage. The climate movement is... A great example of that, you know, many, many years were spent educating, putting a lot of resources into justifying the need for climate action. And I think we're seeing a shift there where not only is the clock ticking, so that's leading to it, but we've talked to so many alliances, climate, sex workers, non-unionized workers that have continually tried to go through political means and been completely stymied and wasted a lot of resources there. And they understand that action comes from when the authorities have to act, when capital needs to intervene, when they need to respond. And just, you know, rallying for an hour or two here and there isn't really cutting it anymore. A lot more alliances are being formed too right now. And I think that's important. We're most powerful when we're united, and that's hard work to do to build alliances and consensus, but it's critical and it it is being done. Yeah, I think the way I want to frame this is, you know, looking at what it is in Canada and then compare that to what it is around the world, right? Because, you know, I come from Colombia and South America right now is having a wave of left-wing victories electorally. You know, we talk, we've been talking a lot about lately everything that's been going on in France. You see the disruptive tactics there. And then the question we always ask ourselves is, why don't we do that here? Why is that not happening here? And we've had guests who have like joked about how like bad weather is enough to, to stop any protest in, in, in Canada. And a lot of the time that's accurate. And I think that a big part of that for me comes from... Uh, a certain de-radicalization that, that happens when when you look at electoral spaces as the only viable way for change, right? Because, you know, when an election comes around, and we're in that right now here in Toronto, right? Like we have, and, and people are getting excited and it's like, oh, maybe something can change. And then, you know, what happens when you lose? Because we lose more often than, than we win. And then people say, we're screwed for the next four years. And there's nothing we can do about that. And there's a certain hopelessness sometimes that comes from that. But the answer is, no, actually, that's the time when we have to fight hardest than ever. When we lose those elections, 
we need to spend the next few years fighting as hard as we can because like you know like jessa has her uh ford tracker we're trying to keep track of all of the horrible things that doug ford has done because we cannot keep track of it because there are so many and it feels overwhelming how many there are right and, and that's what happens is that we get beat down by that hopelessness and what we really need is is, is hope and we need to be fighting and Fighting gives us hope because we can see that we can impact things. And it's like it doesn't begin or end at the ballot box. So I'd say like when I look at the state of activism here, I think that I am seeing a bit of a shift. I think more people are realizing that it's not all about electoralism. And I'm hopeful, but we do have a lot of work to do. And that will also bring electoral victories in the long run. And one of the reasons we have so much work to do is... We don't like to admit this because it's horrible, but the right are out organizing us. They are being the disruptive force that they need to get their demands met and they're being kind of successful at it, right? They've created a horrible atmosphere around the LGBTQ community. They forcing us to be reactionary and to spend resources there and and having to defend comrades there but also you know the convoy is this example that we like to mock and it was really disruptive and awful for the residents of ottawa but there are factors in there that we should be actually learning from their ability to bring people to a location for a sustained amount of time enjoying themselves as awful as their behavior was, right? They keyed into those people, knew how to keep them there for a long amount of time, knew how to get capture the media's attention, and we never really have responded in kind. So although we are hopeful and there is a shift, there's this real lack of cross-country solidarity and urgency, and a lot of that lies with the labor movement just because of the amount of resources that they have. In Ontario, we are seeing a lot more movement, and it's important that labor and social movements work together and increase these tactics together. And I hope we see more of that because that's crucial. I just thought of like 20 different other things I want to add on to it, but we could never get to all of it. That's, uh, I mean, that's totally fair. I mean, but you have, you have one top one? Well, we got one time for at least one top one. I mean, one thing that just comes to mind is just because Jessa mentioned like the right to organizing us, right? And the question is, why is that, right? And I've been I've been thinking a lot lately about like theories of persuasion and stuff. And and the reality is that for the right, it's a lot easier to do what they do than it is for us on the left, because you know moral panics, these these outrages that they're not based on logical thinking. That's a lot easier to capture people with. Than reason, and sometimes I think on the left, one of the things that that hinders us is this idea that that logic, that reason, that facts are enough, and they're not enough. It's not enough to just tell someone something that is well reasoned, because more often than not, that doesn't matter. They won't listen. That won't change their mind. And so I think what we really have started to lose a lot quicker in these last three years is how do we actually reach people. Because we're losing that battle and you're seeing young people go more to the right than at, like at such an alarming rate, you know, and that has to do 
you know, with those moral panics. And also, I just want to mention agriculture because, like, we have no real organizing. Uh, well, there is some, but like, I'm, there's a big disconnect in terms of rural Canada versus urban Canada when it comes to organizing. And that's something, you know, bringing it back to Latin America, it's very different there. Those movements are built out of the rural areas. So it's also, and I don't have the answer there for what we can do different. I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> but that is something that we need to be thinking about is how to connect people from various parts of the country. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think I also have like these six different thoughts I sort of want to connect there. Like The first is that interesting point you made about the up and down. I mean, something that I've over my career tried to deal with was just sort of the the up and down even of organizing when it looks like it's all up to an event. You know, like the the wave of new people coming in and then you go to an event and then you don't do anything for six months. And where do those people go? How do you maintain those community connections? And they just don't, doesn't seem to happen, right? Like you had this wave of volunteers and then after that, volunteers are end up being, feel like more of a nuisance than a, than a support because you can't manage all of them. And without a more effective strategy to maintain people's existence. And like, I think ultimately that comes down to an institutionalization of activism versus maybe what is more a natural community of activists. Like I've seen it time and time again, we get this huge swath of people out, out and the next day, it's as if they don't exist. And it's like, how do you maintain any of that consistency? And that ties into some of the other stuff you're talking about, about how hard it is to, to galvanize people. Because like, if they're not, if you don't have that, and then you also don't have a North Star, right? Like we don't have a really strong vision for anyone to get behind. And so with, without a community of people and without a vision for people, no wonder we're not doing stuff. And then if you had the third point that I think is also important, which is that it's so much easier to break stuff than build stuff. It's way, way easier to break the education system and say, look, it's broken than to build an effective actual system and then defend it. it we're sort of tied on these three different places and all of them end up sort of falling down into a place where yeah, it does feel like we're not successfully building a movement as strong as, as some of these other places are. And I, I also lack answers to those questions, and which take, does bring my, to my next question, which is, have you found any answers? <laughs> like in your conversations with activists that you've been talking to, have you found anything that you do think would be useful to share, you know, with the broader community of people who maybe see these challenges that we've just articulated and, and want to do something different? For sure. Every episode, uh, we find answers, but also a slew of questions. One thing to your comment about volunteers and capturing it and, and dealing with that influx, I thought of Tim Ellis immediately. And there's a lot of practical lessons in terms of skills that you could have or automated programs that are free that we can use that actually will allow one or two people to appear to do the work of many. It makes me think of the kind of ghost accounts around the Toronto mayoral race where folks can't believe that it possibly could be someone grassroots putting them together. But it's incredible the skills that are out there and sharing those skills with one another is critical because we can't actually pay one another to, to have a revolution, right? We all have to have certain sets of skills and be able to employ them when needed. So sharing, sharing that and creating networks that can do that are important. But I mean, the lessons don't stop there. Camaraderie is really important. You know, Santiago, what do you call it? Putting 
Oh, yeah. Putting the social back in socialism. That's like my slogan. We often are like work, 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 right? There's so many fires to put out. There are so many things to plan. And don't worry, there's so many things that we get to break too. We don't have to always be building. There's some things that got to go. But that is draining work. It's exhausting to do activism, organizing, to be fighting. And the need to build into your organizing things that are just joyful or, or celebratory. The folks at Acorn, and again, Tim Ellis and the folks at Landback all kind of taught us those lessons as well as when we examined South American movements. Santiago likes to talk about this a lot. I feel like I, I stole his train of thought. <laughs> Sorry, brother. No, but uh, I mean, there's, there's still like so many more things in terms of just the lessons. And yeah, like, I mean, the big one there is definitely just community building as, as an aspect of that, right? Is that like you had to first bring people together and connect people. And that seems like an obvious thing, but I feel like we forget that, you know? And through also just seeing what's successful in other places, like it, it I mean, one is just, yeah, it, it takes a while, right? Like it takes time to build stuff and it, you have to be intentional with it. First thing that comes to mind is just the power that pizza and cigarettes have at protests. But that that is a, a serious thing, you know, like I've been at protests that have pizza and I've been at protests that don't have pizzas and the the ones that have pizzas are more successful. I don't, I, that's just the way it is, you know? Because, Every university organizer knows that. Yeah. And like, I think about like protests gone wrong. Like I think of like division 14 and how, like after getting like pepper sprayed and like beat up and stuff, like, you know, you walk away and like everyone goes to a park and sits there and talks about what happens and shares beer and, you know, and like that brings people together, you know, like it took something that felt quite awful at the time and made it, a little bit better and, and and that's the thing is that those those human elements need to be centered in in our organizing right we're we're people and and it's hard and we get burnt out and you know especially you know when you're losing and losing more battles than you win like how how are you supposed to keep hopeful when it's easier to give up people the answer to like 99 percent of things is just people right so Building those connections, nurturing those connections. That's that's what it takes to be successful. And you see it when you look at movements that have been successful around the world. They all have that in common. I'm sure there's a lot more. But Oh, there, there are, if you don't mind. An important one for me is that a disproportionate amount of marginalized people are doing the heavy lifting. Oh, yeah. And incredible work. My mind goes to the folks at 1492 Landback Lane. That was a powerful episode for the both of us, just in terms of responsibility, especially for me as a settler. But it's the workers that people thought you couldn't unionize, like the Najwan Support Network, that are winning back stolen wages, or sex workers that have formed an incredible alliance that are pushing through a constitutional challenge. Folks that are literally fighting daily to survive are putting in all of that extra work to completely save all of us, our water, our rights, our planet, everything, our future. And it's completely unfair. So, you know, part of our show is 
demonstrating that there are so many moments of resistance out there that you will not see. You know, the revolution will not be televised, but it will be podcasted. <laughs> we, we will try to demonstrate to you the smallest organizers that have done great things. Like we had two guests on from rural Saskatchewan and Alberta and the mutual aid networks that they're able to create from nothing and the impact that they have on their community as a result. And it's encouraging to see just how much is going on out there, you know, but people don't know where to start, right? Everyone knows there's a problem, but it's like, what do I do? What do I focus on? So thankfully, there's other people out there that are hyper-focused on specific issues so that Santiago and I can right now just help share those stories and have folks learn those lessons alongside of us. And that's so valuable, right? But I want to touch on some of what you're talking about there and, and something that I found super interesting in, and actually is a tweet from you, Santiago, that I like read and I was like, this is exactly the thinking that I'm like stuck on a bit. And so I want to talk to this person about this, which is you, you, you said on this note, basically talking about how the loss of third spaces and the friendship recession is impacting our ability to organize. And I think that this goes totally underappreciated. You know, when we talk about design of cities, for example, we so often miss how the design of cities can totally, totally control how we're able to do stuff. And I'm not talking just about like how they designed Paris so that they could constantly quell protests, which is a fascinating thing on its own. But I'm talking about like, you know, the fact that you cannot meet up with anyone anywhere right now unless you are paying someone money. But yeah, so like, can you explain what you meant by that first concept of like, why is the loss of, you know, third spaces and friends recession so damaging to, to activism? And then what can we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately as well. And I'm, I'm still in the process of, of trying to learn more about this. But I mean, right now, and, and this has been going on for, for decades, right, where where people are having less and less and less friends than ever before, right? And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who, who are very, very alone right now. And, you know, like the amount of people who have no friends, it's like 15% right now, people, like a third of people only have one or two close friends. I mean, it's really, really horrible numbers, right? And then like you start thinking about like, okay, what, what, how, how does that affect society? How does that affect how people, like people's politics are what people care about? And, you know, socialism and it's built on, a lot of it's just built on empathy and caring about other people. And it's hard to nurture that when you just don't have other people. And when people are isolated and they don't have others to to bounce thoughts off, to challenge their ideas, then you end up, what do you use as a substitute? You use the internet. And you end up in these spaces where you get radicalized by the Jordan Peterson to fascism pipeline. And, and that's something you see so much because people are, are, are looking for alternatives and they end up in with, with all of this anger about that. They feel angry that they feel failed by society, right? And then like, okay, well, people need more friends. People n need the ability to make friends. Well, how the hell do you make friends right now unless you're in school, 
really. Or unless you get along with someone from your work. That's a question that is very difficult to answer for a lot of people because those places that we go to make friends, those third places, and so just because not everyone might be familiar with the third place theory, it's essentially just like somewhere where you can spend time and meet new people and spend time with your friends that is not your home or your work, which are, you know, your first two places. And so like right now, there's just not that. There's not a lot of places. And and you touched on it perfectly when you said, you know, like free, right? Because the reality is like the commodification of all culture and interactions has made it so that everything is about spending money. And so like, you know, like I, I, I'm not somebody who has a lot of money. I live in Toronto and, you know, whenever I'm hanging out with my friends, it's like, where the hell do we go out? Where what do we do? I don't know. We stay at home. We cook because we don't have money to go out to places and there's not places for us to do that. And then there's the added problem of winters on top of that, which in Canada, I mean, we're feeling it right now because like there was the great weather the other day and you see everyone out and about and happy, you know, kept inside during winters. So anyways, that's just the long preamble to, to my actual answer about how it affects organizing because you need to build community to successfully organize. You need to have to bring people together. And when everybody is alone and everybody is isolated, it, it's incredibly difficult to do that. And then you can say, well, the Internet connects people. But if everybody is in their echo chambers, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't actually connect you to people. And so the reality is that that's not a place to successfully organize a large group of people. And another part of this is just also just like, what cult but like culture in successful organizing you know we, i mentioned a bit of it earlier when we was talking about pizza but like food music joyful celebration of things like that is a really really important part of organizing and and the places like i i come from a music background right i, I studied music originally before i went into journalism and the time that i've been in toronto playing music all of all of the places I've played at have closed. Like pretty much every place I've ever played at is no longer exists. Right. And that does impact a lot more than what people think it does. It's not so surface level as just like mere entertainment, you know, it's places where people come together and form connections with others. And so how do we organize in that time? I don't have the answer for how necessarily i i know that it's a problem but i don't necessarily know how to get us out of that problem immediately other than we have to go and actually start cultivating those spaces and and, and creating those opportunities and how to do that that's that's a bigger question than what i <laughs> that's above my pay grade communities are meant to be organic but you do have to put effort into creating the right spaces, the right environment for relationships to cultivate. And even things like mutual aid that can show communities the need and benefits of looking after one another. Because the loss of these third spaces is by design. This is part of the neoliberal project to emphasize the individual over society right? That one needs to take care of themselves. And that is reinforced when we don't get to actually see acts of community, of solidarity. And 
So sometimes the most transformative things are simply getting together with people in your neighborhood, finding out with one thing that folks need and trying to deliver it or creating a moment of resistance together and it growing from there. It's not always physical proximity too. Quite often we organize in ways that we silo one another. We task things off and we don't work as cohesively as we should. And, you know, Santiago and I, we hooked up last night on on a phone call to talk about the interview. And we really spent a lot of time on this question for just because it really just opened up a whole other part of a discussion on why does the system do this? Why are we losing these spaces? and yeah, you have to acknowledge too that some people don't even have those two spaces. Workers are now working remotely and not in proximity to one another as well. So it is definitely something we need to look around and find solutions to because yeah. um, it's paying. I think that's why you're seeing the youth go to the right and not to the left. Yeah. And then I also, I'm just remembering all the things that I forgot to say. One of the, like, you look at suburbs as a big example of the failure of that, you know, because whenever a new suburb pops up, you see, like, all of these hundreds of new houses, but that's it. There's nothing else but, like, where people physically live, and there's often very minimal public transportation to help people get around within that, so it then also becomes very car-centric. And then it's like, where, where exactly are people supposed to foster community within those spaces? I mean, the old answer was church, but uh, that's obviously not adequate as an answer. My latest theory of how to actually cope up doing it, like, because I do want to kind of provide like where my head is at in terms of actually providing answers is food is a really great place to start. I get a lot of inspiration for the from the Black Panthers. And that was one of the things that they did very well was, you know, their community breakfast programs. and. Right now in Canada, you know, one thing that people never talk about enough, well, they're starting to, but I've been talking about this for a while and people weren't talking about as much as food insecurity. And it's shocking how many people experience food insecurity in Canada. Like it's it's really, really a high number. Like it's 5.5 million. That number was 4.4 million last year. Not going to get into the numbers because I will never stop. But my point is like, I, I think we need to create spaces in the community where people come can come together to to share food and to eat in community i think that brings people together in a way a lot of things don't do and if we're all like individualized in our kitchen spending more and more money that we cannot afford on worse and worse meals that's not the same as like a nice giant hearty stew that can feed a bunch of people and be a lot more nutritious and so we need we're to create yeah or a bolognese you know like there's a lot of <laughs> i would love that santiago's um, a foodie Warren. yeah but there's like I, cause I, I often think I like, I, I, I love cooking and I want to cook for people, but where the hell do I cook for people? You know, like I need to be provided a space where I can go and cook for people. And I know there's a lot of people who have that same instinct and together it's a lot more effective than spread out and not being able to afford enough food. And, and then you also meet people who can help with all your other problems, you know, like you, you know, people find ways to support each other and you know like i think about like the whole like it takes a village to raise a child and how now we're all raising our children on our own instead and like 
there's so many like layers to this, but like we're not meant to be isolated. Like the nuclear family thing, that that whole suburban that does not work for people in actual. Like it does, it's not a healthy way to live for any of us. We need each other. We need to support each other, and so we need to create the spaces for that. And I'm sure I forgot a lot of other things. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that's to me that is so so poignant in in part because one of the things I think about a lot which is what does it look like to actually live in a zero carbon world? You know, come from the climate space again. And the only version of this that I can imagine feeling abundant and positive is one that relies on community. Like when you fall back to some of the solutions that exist, other than some of the technocratic, like, sure, we need a lot of, we need to expand a lot of green energy and we need to build a lot of you know, transmission lines. That's true. But when you think about what it looks like to, you know, consume less, how does that feel abundant? It feels abundant because you are sharing your hammer or your tools with other people. You are sharing, you know, your meals in communal spaces. You are sharing your experience with others. All of those things suddenly like reduce the dramatically reduce the need to individually consume because everyone doesn't need to own everything. And yet it's more fun. You know, there's a reason why Raptor Square becomes the most bump in place. That's a terrible viewing experience. You cannot tell me that if you that you would prefer to stand alone in a cold outdoor space to stare at a big screen. The only reason you're doing that is because community is there. That's the only benefit. And it's free. Again, it's like those are the things, right? Like, and so we see the things that people will gravitate to when they're given the opportunity. And it is community, right? Like time and time again, it, it to me, it so obviously shows the, the drive that actually makes something feel worth it for people. You know, that what actually, where people actually want. You know, it's not that people hate each other, right? Like there's just nothing that society shows that really proves that. Like, sure, individuals, you might find people annoying, yada, yada. But like we time and time again will come together to be with people uh, across difference for certain experiences and we're all cool with that you know like that's because we want these shared experiences because that's something we value and that you're right like we've designed spaces more and more and more where that's impossible even the idea of like where you could afford to have a space big enough to invite your friends over to even have a meal let alone have a big meal but like you know like i talk to my partner about this a lot we're in a place right now that can maybe fit six people so like we can invite two sets, like four friends over for dinner. And like, that's a lovely experience that I love those times you have. But, you know, that's not 10, 12, 15. It's not. You want a party. <laughs> I mean, to, if, to do these sort of things at scale, right? Like you need space and, and there is no real space. And increasingly there's less and less space. And the more expensive we allow the city to become, the more expensive these spaces will become, you know, unless we find some way to to effectively expropriate some spaces or use spaces in a, in a fundamentally different way. And we're not doing that. Which, which does bring me to this sort of second to last question, which is about joy. Because I think ultimately, A, this is a bit of that something, again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about a lot. And B, also, it sort of comes back to a couple of the different pieces that you've been talking about, right? Like it comes back to how do you build community by creating joyful spaces? And so how do you see the role of joy within sort of social change and social movements? Well, let me start by explaining again another reason is so important, right? Part of 
times that are, have been successful in terms of working class consciousness, heightened working class consciousness, right? Are when times are most devastating economically, materially, right? People tend to react in the way that we need them to, which is together and against capital in the worst times. That's a really hard time to fight through. So bringing joy to people sometimes is literally just the lifeblood to fight another day, right? A reason. A reminder why you're fighting, who you're fighting for, that you have people with you, but also a release from this difficult task, right, of fighting systems that seem impossible. And every time we talk about really successful moments or movements, they've come with little stories of singing, drums cultural events that are incorporated into the work. The Palestinian youth movement is a great example. It's not all, you know, typical activism. There's a lot of work for those folks to do, and it is urgent, and it is draining, and they make time for purely cultural food, film. You know, it's important. And when you have small movements that are hard to fund, like let's be realistic, finding and justifying that space and that time to something that doesn't seem to meet your ends. Like you can't clearly see that you will get X, Y, and Z out of it, you know, like you would a strike or a rally or data mining with a petition, (laughs) you know, like there's not a clear end. So it's quite often the first thing you forget to do Or there is resistance amongst people who have a real urgency to not spend time doing the stuff that incorporates joy. But it's nice because when we do talk to people who have had victories, that has always been part of their story as well. Santiago talks about music a lot and its role. But I want to create a collection of people's favorite moments in protests. And mine always seem to center on drums. Whenever I see a line of drums come out at an action, I get really hyped up. I my my senses love it, the smell of sage also and you know just having moments here and there just allow us to kind of bring the humanity out of this really hard work. One one aspect I also want to touch on is the opposite, I guess, which is burnout. And that's that's a big part of organizing for a lot of us. You know, like, I mean, me, me and Jess, we, we both have ADHD. There's a lot of people uh, in organizing who are neurodivergent. And, and you know, like, I, I've, I've been there a lot of times. Where it's like, I just want to do as much as I possibly can. And I try and do as much as I possibly can. And I burn out and then I end up not able to do as much as I wanted. Right. And, and that's the reality. And that's heightened by just the focus on just doing the work. And this, you know, like I run into it a lot where there's this idea that like all these things that are not the work, quote unquote, is is a waste of resources and a waste of time. But it's really the stuff that gives you the energy to keep going a lot of the time. Like joy is an essential thing that fills us up and allows us, it reminds us 
what are we fighting for? Because what the hell are we fighting for? You know, like we're like, that is the goal at the end of the day, right? Like we're trying to build a world where th that's possible for people where, where we can come together and share experiences and we're not left behind and we're not struggling. And that reminds us of that. It's just like, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is. And you look around the world again, like I know I've mentioned this before, but like there's countless examples of that, you know, like I think of like in Lebanon when like, there, there is a cult. I'm part Lebanese, by the way. Uh, so there, there's a culture in Lebanon of, of DJs and protests. You know, like they throw raves at protests. It's a whole. It's an incredible thing. That's or it. We're going. <laughs> or in France, like you know, you see the people like on the on the streetcar tracks. They have like barbecues, you know, and like I'm like that looks so cool. I just want to, you know, like I'm, I want to be a part of that. That like, reminds me of like, we shouldn't have mocked the hot tub. I said this to you yesterday, <laughs> you know, it, it was obnoxious and we get it, you know, like, again, the people of Ottawa, I'm sorry, but you get it. You know, they were having fun. They were hanging out. It wasn't so much of a chore when if you thought of occupying Ottawa in the middle of winter, wouldn't, you know, like, how do you convince people? But sometimes it's those small things. I just want to tell one little story to give you an example of how it doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to figure out how you can get everyone together. Occasionally, one of our former guests and a good friend, Lulu, sends me cards with stickers in it and with a really kind message around taking care of myself in the fight and appreciating having someone in the fight. and. The fuel those little cards get. When I see that in the mail with the, she puts stickers all over it. She knows we're kids at heart. We're both autistic. And nothing drives me more sometimes. Honestly, it's that very small thought and the postage cost. And that can really help. And it's keeping those small connections alive, especially when, you know, there's folks that are out there struggling around some of these issues and yeah making sure that they remember you know they're there and that you're thinking about them and, and just small sparks of joy can go a really long way yeah for sure so i told you that i would invite you to an event after but i'm gonna invite you right now because i'm realizing that it might be also the only time that i get to mention it to the listeners themselves so i'll invite the two of you as well as pitching everybody else that on may 18th around this concept of joy, we at The Great Majority are putting together an event around imagining a joyful Toronto. And it's going to have music, it's going to have artists there, and community organizations also all there. And we're just going to have a really fun night while also hopefully giving people a chance to envision what a Toronto that they could be happy and joyful in, rather than sort of the sadness that seems to be permeating our city right now. So if the two of you would very much like to join, I'll send you the information, but also anyone who's listening to the show, I will include the link to tune in, which is the name of the event, and the podcast link as well. So I hope you both can make it. And also, you know, joy. It's a nice thing. It's a good thing. That's such a great idea because quite often we are looking at this Toronto mayoral race with a really kind of negative lens because of the narratives that are being pushed out there by the, you know, front runners. And to frame what you want from that perspective of what will bring joy rather than what will, you know, bring safety to transit, which is what seems to be the the pinnacle there. 
And yeah, I can just see Santiago smiling. I know if he's got the time, <laughs> I think he's going to be there. Plus, oh, we absolutely. all enjoy. That sounds like exactly the kind of thing I want to go to. Like that, <laughs> like there is no pretending to like it. No, that sounds absolutely like a blast. I'm I'm 100% here for that. Amazing. Well, so folks want to meet anyone from our podcast or perhaps yours, they can come to that event. But if folks want to listen to your podcast, how can they do it? Oh, we're everywhere. So most folks listen to us on Apple. We apologize. We're also on Spotify, Google, you know, all the pod catchers. And we also try to post most of our content on YouTube. You know, when Santiago lets me put the camera on. <laughs> and, you know, we're on all the social media as well. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I have fun on TikTok, but yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been Jessica McLean, the host of Blueprints of Disruption, and Santiago Halo Quintero, the producer and co-host of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you both so much for being here. And well, see you May 18th. Thank see you. you then. Thanks for having us. That was fun. <laughs>